Welcome, everybody, to the very first episode of Behind the Pencil, an indie podcast where we talk about indie comic books. I'm your host, Mike, and uh, with me, we have a very special guest for the first episode. Uh, we have Ian Tushis of Tragic Accident. How are you today? I'm fantastic, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I want to say thank you for coming back because you've done other podcasts with me, but this is the first one of, of this new comic book podcast. But uh, So welcome to the program. It's uh, very cool to have you. Yeah, recording the initial episode of O and Two Heroes was a really fun experience. So the minute you said that you wanted to do another one, especially one where I just get to talk about myself the yeah. whole time, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer that I was going to say yes. So, yeah, it's just really cool to be able to uh, get in the booth mm -hmm. again with you, proverbially. Uh, I'm not going to go into much detail about it, but Ian and I grew up together. We're like childhood friends. If you want to hear more about our history and like growing up in uh, New York together, you can listen to that other podcast we do. Uh, we, we have one on video games, but we're not talking about video games today. We're going to be talking about comic books. And, uh, video games are going to come up at some point. I, but, very yeah, well, that's Mike, not, but it's not the focus yeah, today. Not the conversation, but I have a feeling at least a couple are going to be mentioned yeah. at some point. <laughs> so... What sparked the idea to have you on this episode was we were talking about comic books and I asked what you were reading and you're like, oh, I'm in the middle of this book. Oh, actually, I'm in it. So <laughs> I was like, wait, you're in a book? So um, Ian was recently including the anthology Worlds Unknown. Uh, I, I'm going to have a link for that down below if you want to read it, if you want to buy it. And uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit. So before we get to the book that was just released that you're a part of, let's go back to the very beginning. I'm assuming you've been drawing and telling stories for years. I remember I have very distinct memories of you and I being on the swing in the park talking about drawing Sonic comic books together. Oh, yeah. So much Sonic OC back in the so, day. So much Sonic. I just, I'm already going off the rails, but I remember there's a group of hedgehogs that we designed, and they were just called North, South, East, West. But then, ah. but then their master was... We were trying to figure out what's in what's in charge of all of the directions. He was just called Center the Hedgehog, and he was right, right in the middle. <laughs> but, Center the Hedgehog! Yeah. So, okay, so, so besides these uh, Sonic characters that we used to draw, what do you have an early memory of when you decided to start drawing or when you got an interest in like storytelling? What's, what, what's one of the earlier memories you have about starting in that path? Um, all right, so to take it all the way back, I have just like a general memory from, you know, first memory, like we, I think my first really distinct memory that I can kind of like hone into and in the rest of my life from that point is like relatively clear. It's maybe about like five years old. So if we go from there, I always had the motivation to just like draw. I always wanted to be doing that just as like a recreational activity. There was very little that like kind of would surpass that as what I would choose to prioritize with free time. Um, and that was like, no doubt, I think influenced by my mother and um, supported by my mother, considering she is a visual artist herself. And so I think just like growing up around her and her practice and her work being in the house kind of, you know, must have inspired me much more so than if it was like a sports centric household or if it was a, um, you know, more kind of like mechanical household or something to that degree. You know, like I, I definitely feel like I kind of inherited some type of like quote unquote family business in that respect, even though it's all very individual practices that me and some of the other members of my family have. But 
earliest like really vivid memory that I had that's in relation to my practice as I know it now was in the second grade. So I'm about eight years old, Mm -hmm. seven years old, eight years old, something like that. This might've even been the third grade. So let's call it like seven or eight years old. And I had drawn up this little tiny, just like, you know, splash page, so to speak of this character with the total regular, regular superhero um, regalia. And he is holding up like a boulder while standing on this like rocky kind of landscape. And, you know, it's got his name. Couldn't even tell you the name. Mighty dude, you know, whatever. Something related to being strong and being a young man combined. Um, Adorn the top of it, you know, big bold letters filled in. The whole thing is like colored pencil with like ballpoint Mm -hmm. pen kind of like outlines. And maybe like another like little blurb slogan about him towards the bottom of the composition i don't remember if i had put like a little fake publisher like information box on it like marvel has where it's got like a couple of their busts yeah. like the marvel logo and so it's like the issue number and the date i might have done like a mock one of those just because i recognized that from comics and i was definitely trying to make something that was very firmly rooted in the comic medium even though it was just that single image so i'm assuming that i meant to make like a mock cover and i remember I think I had photocopied them because I must have like gone to work with my mom one day and in whatever school she worked at's office, I saw like a Xerox printer being used and I was like, immediately I was like, oh, like, wow, I can use that to like turn one drawing into a whole bunch. So my mom definitely showed me how to use the photocopier and I made like 20 color copies of this drawing, you know, all horribly like red, like it's clipping and stuff like (laughs) that. Like it's totally off center. But I made a whole bunch of copies of this drawing and it was probably my mom yet who also gave me the idea to like ask my teacher the next day at school if at the end of the day I could like pass out the drawings to my classmates and just kind of like have like five minutes to basically get on a soapbox and just kind of like give the Stan Lee-esque spiel on this character even though there was like nothing original to him. He's just big, he's strong, he holds a boulder, but here you go. Yeah, like I, you know, I had some probably like not even that super elaborate backstory, but a backstory nonetheless at that point. Couldn't tell you what it is. Don't remember the character's name. But yeah, so my teacher said yes. So me, you know, my little Catholic school uniform of the sweater vest with the button up underneath it, little slacks, just like walking down the desks and just like very proudly and like, you know, like sort of like, mm, 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 you know, like pepping my step kind of mentality passing these drawings out to people as I just kind of like got this chance to explain like what this backstory was and why this dude lifts heavy stuff. Like what compels this guy to go out there and just lift heavy stuff in the name of truth and justice and the American way. Um, And like, I don't even definitely no one gave a shit. Maybe like some kids were like, wow, cool. But then like, (laughs) I don't think anyone ever knew me as like that kid because I was the only kid drawing in my Mm -hmm. class. You know, there was, Plenty of other kids in my class who also like like the same stuff or just like to draw in general, whether it was like superhero stuff or like more, you know, whatever, um, life drawing or anime, which I would consider to be separate from the superhero stuff because this was like back when not everyone was into anime, mm-hmm. you know, like there was the kids who were just into superhero stuff and the kids that were like just into anime. And I was definitely in between those two, but in my own drawing style, gravitated more towards like deep Western rendering style. Um, I wasn't too 
concerned with learning how to draw anime because I felt like it was kind of like formulaic even mm-hmm. back then. And I don't think I understood like exactly what the distinctions were beyond the way most of these characters' faces fit on this yeah. type of template. So I think I was more compelled to draw Western stuff, even though I was just as influenced thematically by, you know, Naruto and Dragon Ball Z mm-hmm. and Shaman King and Yu Yu Hakusho and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I think like maybe like, yeah, like a couple of kids just remarked that it was cool in the moment, but then the next day, nothing had changed. No one came back to you asking for a commission like, hey, can you draw this superhero next? <laughs> well, yeah, it's like how much more I remember I did when I was like in the seventh grade or maybe even the eighth grade, like a little bit older. I did try to start like a portrait business, so to speak, within school, trying to like finesse kids out of their, you know, lunch money by doing like a really poor Crayola colored pencil portrait of them. Um, And I definitely had no takers for that either. I think like one person said that they wanted it, but they never paid me. So whatever. (laughs) But it was time like I would say like that time. And then the time I was just talking about with the Xerox drawings definitely be the first two times where i was like yo there's got to be adults who do this right Mm -hmm. there's got to be adults who do what i just did because who's making the comic books who's making the cartoons who's drawing these book covers you know my mom was an artist but she was much more of a fine artist she was like a painter primarily um so it was all about the wall art and like exhibitions and trying to sell originals much more than a commercial Mm-hmm. approach like yeah. freelance commissions uh being on like a design team at a studio or something like that being a part of a pipeline um so she usually you know would monetize her work by selling originals or by teaching so for me i was like no i want to be in an industry you know like i feel like i can be a really awesome book cover illustrator mm-hmm. i can be a really great comic book you know artist penciler or inker even um and yeah, I actually com- yeah, no, I actually completely forgot that your mom was an artist. I've known her since I was literally six months old, and like when I was getting ready for this and coming up with questions, it never even hit me to ask like how coming up like in an artistic family influenced that. But yeah. I-, I can totally see just like how supportive how supportive your mom would have been just like because I remember going over and just like seeing some of her artwork, so it didn't surprise me like when I- out of the group you were like the best artist there. I yeah, I just feel like. I even knew other kids whose parents were at least like artistically inclined Mm -hmm. um, and that all of those kids also tended to go down that track. Like, I don't know of any kid who had like a parent who was kind of like artistically inclined who didn't, whether it's like a musician or their parents were like in theater or something like that. There wasn't very many of them, especially in Middle Village. Most of our friends' parents were very either blue collar or like. Um, you know, white collar in the sense that they're working much more like labor jobs or office jobs. Yeah, just like the the two distinctions were either, so half the people in the neighborhood were like either cops or firefighters, half their parents worked in the office, or half were like like pipe fitters or electricians. Well, okay, maybe not halves, that's three halves, but but, but that was the breakup of parents, that was it. (laughs) You did whatever your parents did. Yeah, exactly. Probably owned a small business or were civil servants, mm-hmm. and so that track was very like you know, like your dad was a cop, so you'll be a cop, or your dad is a pipe fitter, so you'll probably be his apprentice when you're yeah, exactly. old enough here at that business. That was totally the norm for the neighborhood we grew up in. So I do feel like I kind of fit that norm by doing what my mom did, but defied that norm by going into something a lot more 
uh, abstract and kind yeah. of not as traditional. So you mentioned you remember in like third grade do, doing that printout of the of the superhero of the strong man, and then in seventh grade you were trying to do self portraits. I I called my mom today and I had her check the calendars from when we were a kid because she keeps all the calendars. She was telling me that's like her diary. That's where she keeps all of the events, all of the notes. So she has a history to figure out when this was. Mm-hmm. And it was summer of 05. So I was going into sixth. So you were in fourth grade going into fifth grade. Yep. And I, as soon as I say the name, I'm sure you're going to know what I'm talking about. But you and I signed up for a course at this place called Architots. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. And uh, with, with Scooter. Scooter, or yeah. So I think Dude. Scott was his real name, but he introduced himself as Scooter. But uh, and I was thinking today how weird it was. So for everybody not from our neighborhood, Architots, it was essentially just like it taught STEAM classes over the summer before like STEAM and STEM was a thing. It was like science and engineering for kids. Yeah. Super gentrified Park Slope like yeah. 15 years before. It was actually pretty impressive. They actually – I remember they had on the wall – so the guy who owns it, he was like an architect. Like he, he was an architect. His dad was an architect, and he wanted to like to teach that to kids. And he had PVC pipe sticking out of the wall, and he just had PVC pipe laying around. You could build whatever you wanted, and yeah, and, yeah. and we did that. And for one summer, he had his buddy come in, who was an artist, and he taught a comic book making course uh, in the summer of '05. So it was cool. So I can't believe I for, I didn't mention that right now. Like why you? I, I I went out. I found it. I still have it. So for everybody who, who's listening, you can't see the video. Well, I, have... I never got my copy in the mail. I'm <laughs> pissed about that. To, me and my mom for months were just like, bro, we know. Because the whole thing was like he wasn't even coming in the mail. He was just going to like go to your house and drop it off. Because everybody like lived walking distance from each other. For some reason, I guess maybe like the week he did it, we weren't in town mm-hmm. or something like that. And then trying to get you – no, know, this is pre – just like texting the dude or something like yeah. this is when you still had to just like call his home phone and hope that he was home or if he wasn't he would return your voicemail because yeah i don't think i ever actually got my copy of that so so don't worry we'll go through it now for listeners at home i have a copy of scooter's comic book workshop architot's summer program 2005 uh if i remember correctly there's only a total of like six of these made I know for a fact that my brother got rid of his copy, so there's only, at most, five more in existence. But, um, so so we went through it, and we didn't really have homework, because it's like we went in and, and we drew in class. But one of the assignments that was, like, we had to go home to do was, uh, he gave us, like, a D&D character sheet, and we had to draw a superhero and, like, explain his origin, where he lives, like, his secret identity and stuff like that. And uh, you before you say mine, I, I think I, I think I know who mine is. So before you say it, I want the chance to guess it. Well, I was going to give you shit because this is the last page of mine. And then instead of going to your character sheet, you never handed in your homework. So you don't have a character sheet. So it goes That's right to the first page of the comic. All right. That, I believe that. But I do know what, who my comic was. I do know the central character of okay. my comic. Who, who, who was the character of your comic? Oh, it's Bug Boy. Oh, okay. Very close. I'm assuming Bug Boy is what his name changed into. It was eyes, and he has like he has like a Bug Boy face with like the like the fly eyes and stuff. But... Okay, 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 okay. I did. I I knew for sure there was the insect, but because yeah. I as a kid to this day 
love just like all types of like invertebrae and arthropods and stuff like that. Like, and they that were always here, he has like ant arms. He's got like forearms, got, like a spider. Yeah. I was just trying to rip off Spider-Man, but then also like what I did to make it a little bit different was try to like up the spider part and like yeah. take away the man part. You know, like Spider-Man was just a dude who could do spider stuff. I was like, nah, like let's, I want like a spider guy, you yeah. know, with like the limbs and the eyes and everything. I think, yeah, my, maybe Bug Boy, because I remember, I think Bug Boy just had, you know, more regular limbs and stuff yeah. like that. I think I wanted to push it even further than that. But uh, re- reading this, I can tell that you're clearly the artist and not the writer, because the title is Eyes, the Oregon. You spelled origin mm. wrong. But mm. also, it, this was fifth grade, when, like you were nine. I don't expect you how to, how to spell origin, but... It, that that might be a that might be a dollar word for for a fourth grader, you know. I would it, it, even if one of like the students I teach right now mm-hmm. gave me origin and spelled it correctly, I'd be thoroughly impressed because, yeah, some of these um, some of these kids these days are really struggling. I blame autocorrect, but you know. So so I went through my comic book, and the same way you copied Spider Man, uh, my main character Speeder Warp was just um, Kid Flash. Uh, easy of yep. course right next to him this was a uh, captain beyond he was half yeah. nightwing half batman beyond if you notice his low his chest logo is literally just the nightwing logo with spikes nameless <laughs> oh my god and then we un- were... underneath it uh that's deoxys the pokemon but he had a different oh, name. Yeah. i don't know oh, what yeah. it is but <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. also this wow. weird cowboy character i didn't think i was into cowboys but there's some dude yeah. in a hat chewing a Ooh. straw so I was reading that, and I think it's so funny to see you go from that to participating in this amazing anthology, Worlds Unknown, and you have, I think that comic was only four pages, and here you only have eight pages, but just to, with double the length, like, your art has evolved, well, it, it should, you were eight when you drew that, and you're an adult now? <laughs> Some days, you know, is some days I wish that it hadn't and that I still had whatever edge and mm-hmm. angle I had at that fourth grade level because I think now it's almost like there's so many bells and whistles and techniques that I try to like juggle around mm-hmm. and be cognizant of. Like I feel like it's almost kind of like stagnating to a degree, you know? Whereas back then I was just fucking, I was riffing and i think that that is something i'd like to recapture a little bit more of nowadays it's just going into it no pencil just rocking out fuck perspective <laughs> fucking fuck foreshortening just like going that. total fat 2d zone again like this panel yeah, right I here mean, where you couldn't on. toys was too much to fit so you wrote toy and then underneath oh. it you wrote dash s oh on the next oh. line <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like honestly, that's a that's a stylistic choice. You know what I'm saying? That's that's to that's to further the immersion that you are in a world that you don't recognize, man. Um. <laughs> but looking at this, I really like your art style. It's a lot of like very strong lines, and I don't know if you were intended. I'm sure you didn't intend this when we were kids. But looking back on it, it very much looks like either like the Batman or Justice League animated show, or I'm getting like a Samurai Jack feel from it. With Because mm. Samurai Jack is like very like strong lines. It's like, mm. there's not a lot of like, mo- like he moves a lot, but it's very like straight lines and just like everything going on. And like with the arms and the face design, it looks like a Samurai Jack spinoff. And then that's, a, that's very different from, oh, I just lost the bookmark, from what you have over here, 
Whereas, like, in adults, you have much more... Here you have a lot of demon-looking characters, but I remember a couple years ago, you were into, like, really psychedelic shit, and you were doing a whole bunch of, like... Mm. I, it was, like, nightmare-inducing stuff. I don't know how else, to, how else to describe it, but you were doing a lot of just, like, psychedelic nightmare stuff, and I, and I thought that was cool just to see the change in design. Uh, someone said it pretty concisely uh, a little while ago. This guy who worked at the comic book store in Jersey that I sent some stuff over to you know, sell, uh, on, um, consignment. He, you know, drafted up like a little signage for the, at part of the display rack that my books would be going on. And the word he used to describe was bubblegum nightmare. Oh, and I okay. was like, that's, that's what I'm going to crib for my, uh, artist statement, I guess, you know, when I get to the part about like thematic, quality and like you know what what the visual vocabulary kind of is made up of i think something like bubblegum nightmare or you know psychedelic nightmare i i, I definitely feel like i moved away a little bit from the psychedelia mm-hmm. um in favor of more graphic kind of execution which i think yeah. lends itself more to the bubblegum part you I, know I, I was gonna say you're real into that psychedelic artwork back when you and I like like when we were in college and, and it's been a few years since then and like even reading the story you submitted to the anthology like a little bit is there I can see like some of like the weird space stuff and like the lines coming in is kind of psychedelic but for the most part it looks like you've moved away from that style and there was a uh, one question in particular I wanted to, to ask you about this uh well I, I had a couple but the one that stood out to me was Everyone in the in this anthology, they had like eight or ten pages to work with, and out of all of the stories, I don't know if silent is the right word because it's a book, but yours was the only story with no dialogue, no little speech bubbles, no like in the year, whatever. It's essentially just like all visual storytelling, and I was wondering what the creative like thought process behind that was. Great question. Um, the decision to do that in my work is a not exclusive to this story and is actually pretty prevalent through the work that I've been making. Let's call it in the past, like five or six years. Um, there's only been like one comics project that I've published, I think within the past five or six years that actually has had dialogue and like written out parts. Um, but I really do like to keep it silent for all intents and purposes. For a few reasons, and the main one of which is sort of like an accessibility slash universality aspect of it, where I remove the barrier that is language Mm -hmm. in the printed form so that the story, if it's done well, right, like if the visual storytelling is effective and concise and leads to very clear, easy to understand, you know, observations of what's happening on the reader's part that like I intend, um, then it can be enjoyed by anyone, regardless if you speak English, if you speak Spanish, if you speak any language on earth, um, as long as you can pick up on like body language and visual cues and visual motifs and all of these different things that cartoons i think specifically and like other you know uh graphic design areas less so but really cartoons specifically have helped us kind of 
you know, understand on a level that is beyond language. You know, like cartoons have given us a plethora of ways of, you know, drawing a face to the point that emotion can be, you know, transmitted to the reader way more effectively than if I just like wrote with a bunch of words against a face that, you know, maybe didn't have so much of like that emotional uh, to it. And if I am able to sequence images in panels together, in my opinion, correctly, but I guess just like successfully, um, I can kind of, yeah, I can just explain the narrative and push a narrative forward while even having some emotional nuance to it and even having some like character development that has nothing to do with what anyone is saying. It doesn't require, you know, like um, exposition kind of Mm -hmm. bubbles in order to clarify anything. You know, I remember when I was at the School of Visual Arts getting my BFA in cartooning, um, you know, I I took a class on like script writing specifically for comics and it was a good class. Like I did well in it and everything like that. And we did a lot of exercises that was just like how to kind of spot, um, you know, mismatched or redundant mm-hmm. um, uses of like uh, extra diegetic yeah. words, you know, diegetic meaning like happening in the story. So like yeah. speech, uh, thoughts to a degree, that's kind of a gray area, but like speech, sound effects, all that kind of stuff like that is happening within the realm of the characters and settings mm-hmm. that you are reading extra diegetic means it's beyond that so you know like you see that little asterisk in a speech bubble and then like the little yellow box that's like a note from the editor like oh it's like like c issue 204 or something yeah so something like that is extra diegetic you know because the characters and the setting that does not exist within that it exists in the book itself that you are holding you know and so a good exercise that we used to do back in that script writing class was just to kind of see if we could like look at a page that's been altered or even just a page as it was printed and see if we notice any areas where like, Oh, they totally didn't need that dialogue box. Because if you just look at the photo, mm-hmm. you know exactly what's happening. Like if the, if the dialogue box is Superman flies through the sky and the picture is Superman flying in the sky, you don't need to explain it. It's a waste of space. Mm-hmm. It's like, a, like your whole page is just all blank real estate that you are filling and yeah. developing by adding stuff onto it. And when you add something that is redundant like that or something that is mismatched or like doesn't line up with what the picture is telling you, you're just wasting room that mm-hmm. could be more visual data. It could be a room for the eye to kind of like rest and breathe for a second in an otherwise very cluttered page, you know? Um, and so in doing that kind of exercise and just taking that class in general, I actually found my confidence and my ability to write mm-hmm. for comics getting weaker rather than stronger. Because oh, really? I think that I learned about what it is to like write a script and write, you know, believable dialogue, write extra diegetic kind of information that enhances mm-hmm. the image rather than over explains it or contradicts it. I just feel like the more that I learned about it, the more that I realized that my instincts and even what I came up with when I did like sit with it and really work through it just never felt believable. It never felt like what real people would say. It never felt like a good way of supporting and adding on to what was already being told in image. Because when it came to the extra diegetic stuff, 
I always felt like I just knew how to put everything that you needed to know in a photo. Maybe just to me, you know, like maybe just because of the way my brain works yeah. when I looked at the image after the fact. I was like, yeah, of course I can tell what's going on in here. That might be a weakness of mine because maybe readers aren't as able to kind of mm -hmm. um, extrapolate what's happening from a picture of loan and maybe adding some, you know, like information that verbally explains it would help. But... I just don't think it's necessary as it stands right now. And I think that the 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 guy that created One Piece, let me just look up mm -hmm. his name real quick so I can um you know, pay homage correctly and give credit where credit's due. Um so Ichiro Oda, mm -hmm. right? He had this great quote, I think, where he was like, I don't really edit my work too much after the fact, or I won't. Or, no, no. Oh, man, we're going to have to edit this part. We're going to have to edit this <laughs> I'll part. take it out in post. Run it back, okay. run it back, run it back. It's the dude who made uh, Lupin the Third, actually. Oh, okay. So, there's a really great quote by the creator of Lupin the Third. The, the, the anime the version of it? Um, It started as just a, a like a weekly manga. Okay. I was about to say, because I know... I know Miyazaki of, like, Studio Ghibli worked on the anime, so I don't know if that's yeah. who you're talking about or if you're talking about, like... Because Lupin the Third has been a character that's been around for, like, hundreds of years. He's, like, like a folk hero, so I, w I don't know which version you're talking about. There's been so many. I got you. No, so I'm talking about the the very, like, um, the famous, you know, manga adaptation of mm -hmm. Lupin the Third character by Monkey Punch um, was the pen name of the author. And, you know, he passed away in 2019, and I remember... There was a really great quote by him that basically said, like, I don't really concern myself too much with the clarity of the page or the understandability or the readability of it, because all that does is require the reader to spend more time with my work, to go back and mm -hmm. flip to the back, you know, two pages ago and see if they can find the thread that's actually running all these pictures together. Because if they got lost, he's like, I don't want to make things like deliberately unclear. You know, but there's something to be said about giving your readers some credit that since they like what they're reading, they're going to want to do the investigative work of figuring it out rather than have it over explained and simplified yeah. to them because then they don't come back to it because then the job, so to speak, is done. You know, so much with comic books, it's like you read it once and you're done with it unless it's like an outstanding thing yeah. that you come back to over and over and over again. But for the most part. It's a one-and-done situation, so I feel like the longer I can have my reader actually sit down and look at the work, and if they get lost, feel like they can still kind of trace the trail of breadcrumbs to get to where the narrative is, kind of the better. And if someone wants to give up because it's unclear, and this, therefore they like never finish the work, that's also fine, because then it's just like not for you, but I'm yeah. not going to alter the way that I work in order to accommodate a wider reader base when the reception to my work so far mm -hmm. has told me that my instincts and the way that I'm choosing to work is a success so yeah. far. I, I, I really enjoyed your, your part of the anthology and like, I don't, I don't see this ever happening because, because it's not really my wheelhouse. But if I, if I was to make like my own comic book ever, it would like the idea I have in my head would also be a silent story because i'm very much about you ha you have this visual medium you have to use like the visual aspect of it 
And, and like you mentioned about how comic books, like they sometimes they overexplain thing. I actually stopped reading the Attack on Titan manga because they did that exact thing. We're just like one page was like, this is how I feel, and then just like the next page, he's just like shout, like you man, you just said that. Don't tell me you're angry three times. Show me you're angry. Like clench a fist or punch. Just like it was like I felt like reading that they wrote it thinking the audience was too dumb to pick up on nuance and I, I don't like that i feel like i'm being written down to or i'm being spoken like you have to expect more from your audience you have to expect like i'm writing a concise story they can follow along and like Absolutely. yeah i actually Absolutely. stopped reading that that manga series because i got to issue like 22 i'm like i can't i can't keep doing this i like i don't like feeling like the artist thinks i'm dumb i'm, I'm done i'm not doing it anymore and it's something that i think it's like there's a spectrum of people who are going to have like a, a, a tolerance for that or not see that as a type of roadblock to enjoying mm -hmm. the medium. You know, cause I know plenty of people who enjoy the Attack on Titan manga and have never told me that they've gotten kind of like offended mm -hmm. by how they feel the, you know, um, the dialogue and the image combination is kind of like talking down to yeah. them and kind of making it over simple. Because I think that those people are going into it just to see fucking giant monsters yeah. eating people and fighting each other, you know? Um, whereas I think there's just a certain type of reader that wants to know that the work that they are taking in is one that's going to, like, challenge them to a mm -hmm. degree or, or give them something to consider even after they've taken their initial scan of the page, you know? Um some like some really great artists I can think of that do that are like there's a, a, a French cartoonist who goes by the pseudonym of Blanquette, you know, like B L A N, uh, but then Q U E T T E. Yeah, I believe. And in all silent comics, very um, bold and graphic, almost kind of look like they could have been like woodblock carvings, just oh, okay. it's like black and white with super thick line. It's very 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 simplified cartoons, um, but usually silent. I think all silent, and another artist who goes by the pseudonym of cf very prolific cartoonist who i believe also does mostly silent stuff because it's very abstract and like while they might be using like reputational figures and like other visual vocabulary things that you'll notice as being representational the composition of it and where the narrative goes is all types of just like cracked out essentially so um i think that the silent comic has a particular flavor of that medium is not necessarily like my favorite part of the industry but it does just like enable me to feel like i can get away with it too yeah as long as my visual storytelling is on point enough and my story makes sense and my characters react to things in a believable way and change who they are at a believable pace you know given what's going on mm -hmm. to them it's like there's one moment i can think of in the world's unknown story that I have where I don't like wish I may have necessarily put dialogue in, but I maybe just wish that I had chosen a different method for showing what I was trying to communicate. Cause it's one character who resembles very closely another character. Right. Okay. And what I was trying to show was that that resemblance is so strong that when the main character meets this character, it rem he, he believes him to be the character that he resembles strongly. Yeah. And that triggers like a, an anger reaction in him because he doesn't like that 
that other guy, right? Mm-hmm. And what I did was I kind of like drew like a head-on shot of the character who is not that one who inspires so much vitriol and then draw him again kind of like right next to that looking like the, the character that makes the main character angry. Yeah. Um, still in the same clothes as the original uh, character. Talking, like, I don't know which one. Exactly. Yeah, right. So know. like for the people who are going to be able to see the video as the character in that panel to the left, that's mm-hmm. like kind of waving and speaking is character a, and then he's supposed to resemble character B to the point that the main character thinks that a is B. Um, and I think that that's the one place where, you know, people who read the book, people who looked at the book, the editor, um, they all kind of told me, like, I was confused. Like, they thought he kind of morphed into okay. B. They think maybe, like, character B kind of, like, possessed him or, like, it was, like, a ruse and character B was kind of, like, pretending to be someone else and then showed his true form. And so at first I was like, oh, man, I fucked that up, like – that's kind of just like a whole like there's going to be so many people who are going to read my book and then just like stop there because they're so confused and just dead it or whatever or like that's so much of not what I was going for that now the rest of the story isn't going to make as much sense or like not hit the same kind of beats that I wanted to because of this one roadblock. But then I thought about it and I was like, if you just go to the next page, I think it's very clear to understand what the case is. I was actually about to say, like, it gets explained fairly well on the next page. Like, he has this moment of realization, like, oh, shit, you're not that guy. Just, like, you might be confused for that one panel, but if you keep reading, the next three panels explains it well, you know? Exactly. So it's the kind of thing where it's like, I trust the reader to get past that point of confusion and want to get it cleared up that they do. You know, and there's countless movies I can think of where the director is, like, purposely withholding information, purposefully obfuscating information, for the point of like a big payoff or a big plot twist. You know, so many movies where the plot twist would not be as much of like a huge shock. Mm-hmm. If the director had put some type of information out in the open way earlier. Yeah, exactly. You know? So why would I do that as a comic book? You know, why would I put a little word box in that panel of him looking like the other character? That's like, he kind of reminds me of this guy. Is it that guy? You know, like that's weak. That's like holding your hand yeah, through exactly. that like without words, you experience what that main character is thinking in his head, I think much more immersively. And like you really get to put yourself more in that character's shoes of like, is this someone else or is this who I recognize? But honestly, I'm so threatened by the guy that I recognize, I'm gonna treat it like it's him just to play it safe. Versus if there is a word box that's like kind of being like you know, it's not the same guy, but it reminds the main character of yeah. him, and he thinks it's him. Bro, like, that's, like, 1960s at this point. You know what I'm saying? Like, we've moved past that. And I think that anyone who was confused at that point, I really hope they did not allow that confusion to kind of derail the whole mm-hmm. thing. And I hope that they kind of spent the extra second to then move on and be like, oh, I understand. Yeah. It's not him, but he thought it was because he's in an all-new environment. He just walked through a fucking, like, portal. You know, and is now like a completely different environment than he was five minutes ago. Yeah. You know, maybe his mental facilities are a little compromised at the moment, you know? Yeah, it, it's funny that you bring up the 1960s aspect because I have an example of the extremes on both ends. And um, as, as a good example of like visual storytelling with no dialogue, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say his last name wrong, but 
Gendy Tartakovsky, the guy who did Samurai Jack and Dexter's, he has uh-huh. he has a new show out called Primal, and it's yeah. all silent, and it's amazing. It's just all visual storytelling, and I think that's really a really like, good example uh, of that. Something like that, like an Academy Award or something. Yeah, it, to it, that. it won like something for like best outstanding pro. It was only one season. Like that one season won a bunch of awards. And then on the flip side, I've recently been reading a lot of Tales from the Crypt, just like the, like the uh, old comic books, and they're from yeah. 1956 to 1959, I think. And just the storytelling back then, like you said, just takes you by the hand and walks you through the story where just like every panel has an explanation of what's happening. And I'm like, dude, I can see what's happening. I don't need to tell me, oh, you're right, this guy is the murderer. I can see him with the gun in his hand. You don't need to explain that to me. And it's just like, it's funny how yeah. I think, like, as as we move forward, like, in different mediums and, like, people are willing to be more daring and try different things, we're getting away from that style of, I need to walk you through every stage of what's happening. Because, like, at the time, comic books weren't really popular. This was, like, a new medium that they were, they were trying out. And then... There was a boom, and now everybody loves comic books. And then, like, even that artistic style of, like, movies used to be silent because there was no dialogue. We, we couldn't have, like, talkies, they were called. And then we're going yep. back to, like, no dialogue episodes. Like, I haven't seen it yet, but apparently the first episode of the new Boba Fett show, no dialogue. It's just all visual Thanks. storytelling as well. And I think it's cool to see that we're moving away from that original story like telling method and moving into a more let's respect the audience not talk down to them they're not dumb they can follow along with this amazing like story we have to tell and i like that exactly and and it can can, even when you consider like yeah if you make a if you write a story in english and it gets published for another country's you know market you just translate it you know translated editions obviously exist to like every published book you know worth a dollar anyway and um you know there's like dubs for television shows and movies when they're screened in you know languages besides the language that like the original audio was recorded in you know so it's not even like we live in a world where we can't make things accessible while also using dialogue and written word or a spoken word but you know like You've watched a bad dub of an anime before where, like, you know, it's just horrible. Or you've, you know, like, read the translated version of something and just, like, the translations are just totally wrong. And just, like, so, you know, because especially when you're translating into English, yeah, any kind of nuance of the other language mm-hmm. is probably going to be lost because they tend to translate it very literally, you know? Because um, I feel like English is just, it's not a very literal language, yeah. but I think that especially compared to languages that are built up of like written characters versus, you know, like a, a, an alphabet, so to speak, as we have it, I think there's way more nuance that you cannot translate to 20, how many letters in the alphabet? 26? 26, yeah. 26 letters in the alphabet versus the infinite, nigh infinite configuration of lines that create written characters you know, it's hard to compare how extensive describing things or speaking about things can be. And so I think that if it's silent, you just don't have to worry about that, you know, because if you see a character walk on a rake that's on the ground and then the rake swings up and slaps them in the face, you as a reader just go like, ooh, ow, you know, that hurt. Like, I'm sure if that happened to me, that would probably mm-hmm. hurt. And that's why everyone thinks that fucking Bugs Bunny is hilarious, you yeah, know, exactly. because like, 
it doesn't matter if you could listen to the words while you're watching Looney Tunes, or like if you could understand what they're saying in Looney Tunes, it's just funny when fucking Wiley e. Coyote gets like a bomb drop. Yeah, it, just, it just, explodes. You don't need words to know, like to get that reaction mm-hmm. that you're looking for. You don't need words in a detective movie where like he's chasing a perp down the street and like he almost gets him, but then like a little spot of like bad timing lets the perp get away and he's just pissed because like he had him, but like luck wasn't on his side. Like you can be super good at your job. But if you're unlucky for a minute, you can lose everything that you were working towards. You know, like that's something that anybody can empathize with that can be told visually, you know, like and that and there's so much room for like deviations from the narrative norms there that I think people forget about when they're able to just yeah. type infinite amounts of stuff into a speech bubble and then just shrink it down to the point of almost being unreadable you know that's actually where i I was was reading a little bit about the influence that influences that went into star wars and george lucas as a kid uh like when his dad would go to work there was a movie theater right next to his dad would drop him off just like he would watch movies all the time and he would watch a lot of the older movies and they were just silent because, like I said, that they didn't have talkies at the time. Right. But he watched a lot of old-school silent Japanese films, which is where, like, the samurai elements for Star Wars came. And because they were silent, it doesn't matter if they were Japanese, French, German, or whatever. It didn't matter. He could just watch it and enjoy it because he didn't have that language barrier. So, like, yes, you could watch, like, a dubbed or a subbed version of, of a medium. But there's just something that much more accessible. You don't need to take that extra level of translation because, like you said... The translation could go wrong, like in um, in mm-hmm. spirited away. They have to break this seal. They they have to do something with the yeah. seal. And I was watching the behind the scenes aspect, and when it was being translated, they translated the word seal not as like something you seal an envelope with, but as the animal seal. And they're like, "What the fuck is this? Why wh- why do they have this little thing? Yeah. That's not the animal seal." And everyone's like, "No, dude, it's like a lock seal, not that type of seal." Just like. That issue with translation, like, you can avoid that issue entirely with having a silent story. Totally, totally. Um, yeah, no, I couldn't, I couldn't agree. Even, like, onomatopoeias mm-hmm. are pretty generally accepted, you know? Like, even if you don't speak a language, like, especially the way that you write yeah. the onomatopoeias, you know, typically you're really going to stylize when you use a word to yeah. uh, communicate sound. And I'm fascinated by that. Like, I love the 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 church like the the challenge and the experiment that is every time you need to communicate sound in a mute medium you cannot hear a book but you can draw something in a book that you can hear in your head or you can write something in a book that you can hear in your head you know and like when we read books i don't know about you but like i'm hearing every word out loud in my head as i read it you know um just like if I read a comic book where someone's like getting brained by a baseball bat mm-hmm. and the words behind it are like, you know, like wham, but like the, the letters are like super, you know, sharp and bold yeah. and have like crazy like lines coming up the bottom that gives you a lot of like vertical mm-hmm. speed and stuff like that. I'm also, I'm going to hear like that crunch and that like, you know, like that, like real thud and like the, the bits of the skull in that head kind of like cracking and, you know, some of that little like, wetness of you know the brain kind of being exposed like i'm gonna hear that if the creation of that onomatopoeia word graphic Mm -hmm. art is done 
correctly and if it matches up to what is happening in the picture correctly enough. And that's insane because, like, that's something that has no sound to it whatsoever, no volume, still creating that in your head. And that's what matters at the end of the day. So I, like, I love that part of the job. I love figuring out how I can communicate a sound. And I think that you don't even always need an onomatopoeia, like wham, bam, oof, cow, whatever. You don't always need that either because you can also, you know, you draw a character standing in like a field, a couple of leaves like floating past them in the wind Mm -hmm. with like a really thin line that maybe like does a loop trailing behind the leaf to kind of give you an idea of what his arc kind of was. And maybe like there's like snow on it, like a very much like Bill Watterson, Calvin mm-hmm. and Hobbes snow on the ground is just the white of the page with like a border around it to like make like its its topography. Um, like then you can hear the sound too, because then it's like it's almost the silence, but you can hear the crunching of the snow yeah, exactly. underneath footsteps, or you can hear you you know that there's wind because you see leaves being brought into the air by wind. So then you can hear that like windy kind of like whooshing in your ear as well, you know, or like if the leaves are totally or the trees are like completely almost like bent over and like pushed to the side, then, you know, it's like torrential wind. You can really hear it like that, you know, so then you don't even need any type of word. You don't need any letter or combinations of letters to give you a sound there like that is insane. And I think so many more people would just rather stick a box in the middle of the panel that's like. It's whoosh. really just like yeah. Well, it's like, whoosh is one thing. I'll get, I, I will do a whoosh if I don't think that everything else is working yeah. well enough. I'll do a whoosh. I'll do a you know. Or, or uh, as compared to someone yeah. going, "Wow, it's really windy today." Like, yeah, yeah, bro, we can see the tree. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Unless that person's like part of their character development is that they state the obvious <laughs> and the whole point of the story is them stating the obvious less. I don't want to see that shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like no disrespect to people who have chosen that and who do it. My, I would never want to tell someone that their cartooning is wrong because that's such a stupid thing to say. Mm-hmm. No cartooning is wrong. And even if it is incongruent, that's not wrong. It's just a choice that you made. And there's plenty of work where the word and the image is incongruent or a non sequitur. And it's still fucking awesome. But I would just never do that. And I think that the more I stick to the silent comic stuff, the more I get better at it. Mm-hmm. And then I think just like my drawings get better. You know, I, I just get better at visual storytelling, which is the whole point of what I do. Uh, speaking of visual storytelling, the other thing that stood out to me is it's only on one page, but you have... I don't know if it's one panel, I don't know if it's seven panels, but at one point you have, it looks like, a scanned pictures of clay figures in there, and, and you were the only comic in this anthology that, for lack of a better term, used a different medium besides just, like, the drawn aspect of it. So what was the thought, press, thought process or decision behind, you know what, let me make this out of clay and work it into this story? Um, That was a decision I made because... You know, in thumbnailing these pages and kind of sketching them out and like essentially just like establishing all of the shots and all the storytelling beats before actually taking Mm -hmm. it to finals, you know, Um, I knew that like I wanted there to be a moment where he like enters this setting, which is, you know, for all intents and purposes, kind of like a hippie commune kind of, you know, like a total foil to the very 
carceral, uh, militaristic world that he came from. World that he mm-hmm. came from, right? So I, I kind of wanted to flip that and make it something more of like a, a, a like a hippie commune. And I knew I had to, or I wanted to, at least, because I didn't have to, but I wanted to spend a second to go into why these people are, you know, pacifistic, right? Like why these people have denounced war, why they've denounced violence, why they are the total opposite mm-hmm. of the, you know, military conglomerate, whatever they are, empire that this guy was originally a part of, the main character. And I figured that, like, something you know made of stone monumental you know in the center of this commune just made sense because like that's recorded history especially in a society that like from what we can also see in the story has relatively kind of like more or less denounced a lot of the more like you know uh high-end technologies Mm -hmm. that we might have seen in the first part of the story um you know something there's something about carving a history into stone or just like casting history into stone that is like obviously you know um it's 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 always going to be around you know like that's what the earliest cultures did that's what we still do to this mm-hmm. day you know um and so i think that i knew that that's how i kind of wanted to make that visual storytelling device of how do i talk about their history in a way that does not require dialogue mm-hmm. And I think a stone monument made sense to that. And when I was drawing it, I was like, this is cool. And like, you can kind of tell that it's made of stone in the way that I rendered it. Cause like I added a lot of like pock marks mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And like really kind of like tried to shade the shit out of it compared to the much more open shapes that make up like the, like the, the little, forest like, there and or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it worked, but it wasn't working to the point where I was like, this is very much believably a material that is maybe separate from everything else. You know, it kind of looks like it is of the same stuff as the grass and the people in their clothing and their abodes and the tree. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, it just didn't, I, I wasn't selling that texture in my opinion. And I could have probably with just by practicing it more and going harder at how to just like render stone you know but then it just kind of occurred to me like if i just sculpt it out of clay it's immediately going to be earthen it's immediately Mm -hmm. going to register as a separate material from everything else it'll look handmade it'll look slightly um you know like um pre new world (laughs) you know look, look a little more old world um, and so I just did that. So yeah, I made panels. They were all about maybe like three inches by three inches, except the tall one, which is maybe like two inches by four or something like that. And I made it out of, uh, some modeling clay, which I also use all the time, uh, to make like little dioramas and stuff. And yeah, I kind of just put it on a whim. I had to do a little bit of Photoshop, like wizardry to kind of make it fit and have like a little bit of a contour to it when you see it from afar because i did want it to kind of register as kind of like a standing cylinder shape almost yeah so i think i had to like bring the corners in a little bit to kind of insinuate some three-dimensionality i don't know if that really hit but that was my intention and then when i saw it on the page i was like this i think communicates what i want to communicate way more effectively than if i had also just like drawn yeah. this structure with ink and tried to make it sell as 
stone. Um, and I think that like, I, I don't really do that kind of stuff often in my comics, but the success of that made me want to, it was way more work. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, yeah, but I mean, the Gavin was super good about giving us a deadline that was very far ahead mm-hmm. of when he kind of invited the artists that participated to participate. So knowing that I was going to finish well ahead of the deadline anyway, I was able to budget for that time and kind of go that extra mile because it wasn't like the pages were due tomorrow. And I was still like up to that point of finishing the final pages. Speaking of, how did you actually get involved with Gavin? Did he approach you? Did you see he was getting this together and you wanted in? Just like, tell me a little bit about that relationship and partnership that you have with him. Sure. Uh, Gavin's a great friend of mine. I met him at School of Visual Arts. We were both doing our undergrad in cartooning. Um, we had a lot of the same classes together. Visually, we are very different. He's like this super tall, super like just like dense. Uh, I believe he's Scottish uh, in his ancestry, dude. Lovable, you know, uh, big kind of just like teddy bear guy. And then I'm just like short and super skinny with like a cigarette dangling out of my mouth, just like eternally talking shit about stuff. So it was kind of like a, a, an odd coupling, but I really, really respected his work, his work ethic, um, where he was able to pull inspiration and influence from the scope of his ability to stay up to date with like happenings in the comic world and like stay on top of new releases and the, you know, the, the um, careers of creators and stuff like that. He went to like every comics fest that came through New York. He, you know, um, always had just some new little photocopy zine that he was going to, you know, drop, um, sell for like a couple of bucks, sketchbook zines, little tiny comics. He, you know, uh, he's just a cool guy. And I think that we just gravitated towards each other because we like each other's work a lot. And I think you know, the friendship kind of just naturally blossomed out of that. And so now, you know, we just talk a lot. And he was mentioning how he wanted to put an anthology together, maybe back in like 2019, I think. Oh, so it's he been said, in the works for a while. Yeah, like the, the idea was spawned, I want to say in like 2019, because I really wish I could get a bunch of folks together who I like and just like make a book that has all your, you know, Mm-hmm. anthologies are not a new concept whatsoever but he was just he just wanted to get his hands dirty with that because he was so used to just publishing his own work um and he was doing a lot of freelance work for this um this like kind of like independent toy company called um toy pizza oh, okay he was doing a lot of like mock-up work for them and then also doing these like comics that would accompany the release of the toys which was really cool and so he kind of felt like he wanted to do something that was more for himself. And he figured anthology was going to be a good way to like both like get a new comic story out there of his own to motivate him to like get that kind of work done, but also get his, you know, hands wet, get his feet wet, get hands dirty, hands feet, dirty wet. feet wet. Hands dirty, feet wet. to get his feet wet with, um, you know, being a curator and being a, a publisher so to speak versus 
a self-published artist, you know, like publishing other people's work, formatting the book, getting it Kickstarter funded, you know, uh, getting it like very professionally mm -hmm. printed and not just doing it on printing equipment from the school's, you know, cartooning lab, you know. So it was a really big undertaking for him to be able to pull off. And he did without a hitch. He got really awesome incentives for the Kickstarter backers. Um, and I think that he just went about it really well. The reception to it has been really positive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have been asking me where the next one is. So I've been trying to tell him that the people want a new one. Um, and yeah, so basically once he said that he wanted to do it, he already kind of like, you know, made it clear that I was going to be one of the people that he was going to want to have contribute to it. Um, and then fast forward to like the end of the winter of 2020, you know, we've been in quarantine for maybe like about a month, a month and a half at that point. And I think that's when he messaged me and he was like, well, since I'm not really doing anything else right now, not working or anything, mm -hmm. I got more time than ever to devote to this project. So I think now's the time. So he tapped me, a couple of other artists that he knew. I didn't really know anyone else mm -hmm. that contributed, but those are all people that he had encountered either at like zine fests or just like through the internet or whatever. And, you know, now I'm glad that I was able to share book space with such awesome creators because I really feel like I met some awesome people by being a contributor to it. And I just think that he had a really keen eye for who to include so that there would be a really wide range of like styles and atmospheres and stories told and emotions depicted and just like takes on this common theme of like a world unknown and like, you know, creating a story about someone in unfamiliar territory or what life is like in a place that we can't imagine or, you know, anything like that. Like, I think that that prompt was really open-ended, mm -hmm. but also made it so that all of the contributions fit very neatly next to one another. Yeah. Even if it has to be a part like his book, his comic in there, I absolutely love and unbiased, but probably my favorite story in there just because, I mean, A, he's a beast when it comes to drawing, but also B, I think he did a really great job of like establishing a world where I'm curious as to how it got to that point. Yeah. But I'm also just so interested in what's happening. I would rather find out more about what's happening in the moment than how, like, than where I'm at, or like, if it is Earth as we know it, how to get to this point, or if it's not Earth, where is it? Like, I had those questions, but I was also just so into what was happening in the moment that that was all. I just wanted to keep reading because I was yeah. just like, I don't even care if you give me more backstory and exposition. Just like keep telling this story, you know. Like, like um, his his story in particular does a lot of visual world building where, like you said, like, we don't know if it's our Earth. We don't know what happened. But there's a lot of stuff that isn't, like, I'm looking at this one page and it looks like a dead exoskeleton or a decaying carcass of some sort. But it's like twice the size of, of a normal human in this. And no one walks up like, oh, great, it's the remains of whatever. They don't explain what it is. It's just part of the environment and the characters roll with it. So we roll with it. And I think that's really good for the immersion they don't stop to tell you like welcome to this or like oh great we found another of this it's like they don't know what's going on we don't know what's yeah. going on we just got, we just got to survive in this wasteland and i thought that was a i thought that was a good way to say it's something familiar but different and just everyone was just cool with it 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I think, you know, he, I, I, his take on the prompt is so strong. It really sets the tone. Mm-hmm. And his is the last one, I think, or like second to last. I think it's the second to last one I was just looking at. Yeah. So I think it's a good way to kind of like exemplify what he meant by having this be the theme of all the stories. And obviously, yeah, like, shouts out to him for not putting his story first because that'd be pretty raw as the publisher. But I think it is, like, you get to see all these different interpretations of this prompt, and then you get to see his towards the end. And it's kind of, like, such the perfect take on the prompt and, like, establishing what exactly he meant by Worlds Unknown that it's just kind of, like, nice... It's like it's like the finisher on the headline of a concert, you know. Yeah. It's like if they're not getting it right, so to speak, what the hell were the other bands there for? You know, and it's like I've been to some concerts where I loved all the bands, and then we get to the headliner, and I'm like, them? This was like the culmination. I, I enjoyed way. I enjoyed all these so much more because I feel like they were so much more better. I just went to a concert like that last week where opener was like super duper straightforward death metal from New Jersey, like very much like Deicide, uh, Cannibal Corpse, you know, just like paint by numbers kind of take yeah. on death metal. No shade, loved it. But, you know, just like uh, tried and true. Yeah. And then the band was much more like noise focused, like the, mm-hmm. the vocals had like all of like the loop pedals and the crazy stuff for making like much more like harsh noise kind of things, you know, like scraping metal together in front of a microphone. And the guitarist had like a trumpet at one point, but then they also just played like really um, straightforward, like grindcore on top of that, you know, just like maximum speed, maximum chaos kind of stuff. And then the band after them was like almost kind of like a Midwest emo kind of thing very traditional early 2000s screamo like thursday yeah kind of or you know like very much like within that kind of wheelhouse like very like you know punk first and foremost yeah. you know like the drums and everything like that but then they would have like the part where they slow down and the guitarist takes all the distortion off his guitar and he does more of just kind of like the crooning singing instead of the screaming and then it turns into screaming and then it's the whole crescendo it's very emotional um very very like they felt like the headliners because they had the biggest yeah. crowd, they had the biggest draw, and like the they got the biggest reactions out of people. So when the headliner came up, and it was like just like real like Motorhead kind of rip off mm-hmm. like leather. They, 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 they got the vest, so they're all like in denim and so, yeah. I won't say the name of the band just because I, I don't want to throw shade at them specifically, but they did exemplify this kind of like very much like fantasy slash road warrior combination thematic quality that sounds like people trying to be like the motorhead mixed with um i mean maybe if you're familiar with like skeleton witch or someone like that like some more of a kind of like a thrash kind of approach Mm -hmm. you know um everyone had a beard they all looked like they worked at a craft brewery Mm -hmm. you know sleeves nowhere to be found um and i just remember thinking like me and the buddy i came with left like two songs into their set (laughs) because after those first three bands either doing something we were that much more into or that much cooler Mm -hmm. they like they they came from all these opposite ends of this heavy music spectrum but when you put them all together they fit super well because it was like if you're here for one you probably enjoy the musical stylings of the other two enough 
that you're at least going to like enjoy it and appreciate it. But then these headliners felt like it was just like, who are you here for? You know, you're not here for the death metal guys because you're way too like, um, you're way too, I guess, like optimistic maybe is the word to use, but like slightly more based on like the musicianship mm-hmm. and like rock and roll kind. It was very much like a, you know, like pound your fist in the air kind of music, much more so than the straightforward death metal, which is much more just like the headbangs. You do like yeah. the windmill headbang and shit like that. Um, so they weren't there for those fans. They weren't there for the Midwest Screamo fans. That's for sure. Because all those people left as soon as <laughs> that man was done. Uh, and I don't think they were getting like the noisy experimental grindcore people either. Because those people are all like, you know, they're, they're coming just to see something new in that respect, right? Or something that's just like so abrasive that it's like inaccessible and that's what they get off on. So it was just kind of like the rest of the bill, I can see more of how it kind of mixed together to make this cool diverse lineup but they it's almost like the headliner was the only one that didn't get the memo yeah that like to be doing something that was going to still hit certain marks that the all the other bands kind of hit much more um and that's how i feel about gavin's approach to the anthology or i guess that's the opposite of how i feel about gavin's approach mm-hmm. to the anthology it's like from gavin's story in the anthology i feel like all of the rest of them come out of that because his is just like exactly what the theme of the book is. And then everyone else's is like different takes on that theme that yeah. like might not be like, might not have as good of world building as his might not be as easy to follow as his. You know, I definitely think that his story is easier to follow than mine just because he has written word and mm-hmm. I don't. So I think his just leaves you with a lot less questions and the questions that you do ask are the ones that are kind of related to more about like the world building and stuff like that. But the actual like panel to panel figuring out like this happens and this happens and this happens. I do think his is more clear than mine. So I just, I don't know. I I, I can talk about Gavin all day because (laughs) before we were friends, I was a fan, you know, like before we were friends, I was looking at his work like during our class critiques and being like this fucking crap. (laughs) Like, I gotta I get see with that guy, yeah. In the school library or something like that. Like he would leave like a whole stack of the photocopy zines in the library for people to take for free and I'd take one and I'd be like, This is like this is amazing. You know, like I can't believe I'm in school at the same time as someone who is this advanced in this mm-hmm. practice. Like he just like he, he he kind of seemed like he was at a postgraduate level while still being an undergrad. Yeah, yeah, okay. Seems like he had already done four years of this and had graduated and is now coming back for some reason. You know, like almost like he's like from the future to a degree. Um, and now he's going back in the past or whatever, but, and going to SVA, you were surrounded by kids like that. Like there was mm-hmm. so many people that I met at SVA who I either like still keep up with now and like, I'm like, you know, acquaintances with at least, or like friends with at least because I just really like their work. And that was enough to kind of make a friendship blossom out of it. Or like we might not even be friends that really know each other, but I still keep up with their work just because I saw it in a class one time or I saw it because a teacher had it in like this like personal collection of work that they'll show to other students on the first day of class to kind of show like what other students have done as part of the assignments that we are then going to do later in that semester. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I don't, I, there's a lot that I could say about my time at SVA and what it's like as an institution. But what I'll say in this moment is that the people I met there are typically super talented, super driven and more or less fun people to be around nice and then um 
you, you were talking about the concert you were going to, and this popped in my head. Circling back to that, if you you like to tell stories, essentially you're a storyteller. Doesn't matter what the medium is. So if you had to work in a medium besides the comic book industry, how would you want to tell your stories? Like arguments say, comic books never existed, but you have you want to tell the same story that you told in Worlds Unknown. How would you get it out there? Um. You know, now now I think is when the video games were going to come up. Like how okay. I said, they're probably going to come up at some point. It used to be, I, I thought I was, like, if it was going to be comics, it would just be animation, mm -hmm. you know? Because like, skills are not quite like a one-to-one -one kind of transfer, but obviously the barrier to entry with animation being, like, knowing how to draw, knowing perspective, knowing how to, like, establish visual vocabulary... You know, all that type of stuff, like, yeah. you're going to need that if you're going to do animation, too, or at least representational, you know, cartoons, mm -hmm. right? So, like, if I wasn't making comics, I would have said putting it in just, like, a cartoon form would be what I would do. But in the, in, you know, sheltering in place in 2020, that kind of afforded me the time, you know, my unemployed ass to be able to try out game design for myself. Mm -hmm. Of two programs I tried was uh, Godot, G O D O T. Mm -hmm. um, really fantastic game design software, kind of like an alternative to uh, what is it, Unity? Because, yeah, yeah. you know, Unity free. Right. Yeah, everything's um, made on the Unity engine. Yeah. And that is, that's like a triple A mm -hmm. game engine that just like happens to be for free um, because, you know, the company that makes it is cool like that, I guess. Um, but. You want to talk about a high skill ceiling and a, and a huge, like incredibly steep, mm -hmm. just like basically straight vertical line learning curve for how to make stuff with it. Godot uses its own programming language for oh, the most okay. part. Yeah. So it's really simple to at least get stuff going in Godot versus Unity, which I think is C sharp or maybe even python or something mm -hmm. like that but basically because those are programming languages that are so much more eponymous in information technology i think that learning how to make them do what you want them to do within the realm of a video game takes slightly more learning whereas godot's like this is a programming language, programming language made to make games yeah so everything about it is about making a game everything about it is like establishing player positions establishing physics establishing like nodes and stuff like that you know so i toyed around with that obviously you know even be you have like there's so much that goes into game making it's insane but it was nice just to mess around with it and like just to have it in case mm -hmm. i ever kind of like get the bug to start working yeah. on it i can like, start placing some stuff in there and making it move or whatever just to kind of like a jumping off point but what I also downloaded was uh, GB Studio, made okay. by Chris Albee, who has an itch.io page for it. And you should totally go there because it is a free software that is open source, um, as is Godot, I think. Uh, Godot is also free, so that's also a huge part of it. Um, but GB Studio is free by Chris Maltby, and it is basically – it is a visual – game design software so there is you know it does use a certain programming language to make everything run i mean it, it's it's a soft like of course it's using mm -hmm. programming language 
but you do not have to do a single typing of code to make a fully functional, advanced, you know, complex game with challenges and rewards and a story and everything you could ever want there to be. Caveat is it's to the specifications of like the Game Boy Color. Yeah. You know, you can't make anything more advanced than, you know, The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening yeah. or, you know, Pokemon Silver or something like that. Like even like trying, like people have been trying to remake Pokemon games in there, like make the engine from scratch. And they're still trying to figure that out because when they initially coded that game, like they really pushed that hardware to its limits to make it work the way that it does. Um, but yes, some people have made some really, really incredible fully played or fully playable games in GB studio and getting into it. I was like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to be, you know, uh, I, th- I think the guy's name is, um, the fuck is the name of the game. There's one game that was made for GB studio. That is like really like he, 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 he made cartridges for it. Like he had That's cartridges cool, yeah. made. So you can play it on hardware because GB Studio allows you to either export it for use in an emulator, export it to be played in a browser, or export it to be played on cartridge. Um, so it's called uh, Dadius, D E A D E U S, I believe. Some some configuration of those letters. I feel so bad. Um, yeah, an authentic horror game for Game Boy, Dadius. D-E-A-D-U-E-S um, by Isma. And that's like the pinnacle for games made in this software right now. Oh, like That's, that's cool. a game that it's really sick. And I knew I wasn't going to make something like that because like, I don't have the time. I can't even imagine how long it took that cat to make that. All the assets, plotting it out. There's like multiple endings. You know, the whole thing is kind of like a visual novel to a degree, but there are like puzzles and stuff like that. No combat as far as I know. But it's very much like um, Majora's Mask where you keep rewinding a clock over and over again because it's like you have like three in-game days or so to do something before like the end of the world, I believe. And then you kind of have to keep resetting those days until you can finally unravel the whole mystery. Something along those lines. Um, I kind of just wanted to make essentially like a tech demo, you know? Like I just wanted to make something that was interactive that still told a story just so I could say, like, oh, yeah, I've made a game before, you know? Like, there might not be any challenge. There might not be any puzzles. There might not be any combat. There might not be any items for the most part. But I've just never made something where someone can move the story along in a way that wasn't just advancing a page or, you know, swiping on a screen. And I wanted to do that. So I made something called Darkness Fixer, um, which is, a, I call it, like, just, like, an interactive experience because, again, just to call it like a game is kind of a stretch, but I guess it is at the end of the day. Um, but it's an interactive experience I made in GB Studio that my patrons have access to. So if you subscribe to me on Patreon, you get access to play it. Uh, it probably take you about a cool 10 minutes from beginning to end. It's essentially just like a walking simulator sort of kind of a thing with a little bit of visual novel elements to it. Um, but yeah, I made it in a couple of weeks i'd say it probably took me like three months from start to finish making all the assets 
putting it together in GP studio, working out all of like the triggers mm-hmm. and making stuff happen and whatnot, troubleshooting it. And yeah, then I put it online and only some people have been able to play it, but I do think that, yeah, if I, if I did not have to limit myself to comics, like if I wasn't going to limit myself to comics in terms of visual storytelling, I would do it in games for nice. sure. And I think they would also be silent. Okay. Cool. It's not silent, but I think that if I was to make mm-hmm. games, they would still be silent just because I think that like now my brain is just kind of locked into doing that. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if I know how to make a story that's not silent <laughs> anymore. Like Darkness Fixer is not silent, but there's very little one character talking to another. Mm-hmm. And it's very much descriptions of things because okay, again, yeah. That's a time where, because I am limited to, I believe it's a 164 by 248 pixel grid mm-hmm. at any given moment, I felt like adding verbal explanations, maybe not necessary, but was called for. Because if I have to simplify something to a 34 by 34 pixel grid, using words just allow me to kind of like help paint a picture in the Mm -hmm. user's head that is closer to what I'm picturing in my head when I render it out like that. So if it's a shape, if it's a statue, if it's a character, if it's a background element, that's when I had kind of like little dialogue boxes pop up with the text running through. And there's like some like audio log kind of things that you can also stumble upon that are written out. Um, But again, very... I think it's like three lines that one character says to another and that's it um but yeah so i would love to make more games i'd love to make games that actually have like feedback loops in terms of like you know combat looting yeah. or um puzzles reward for those puzzles or something like that you know an rpg element i, I have rpg maker as well i downloaded one of the editions of that and i've been meaning to start like a real for real project because there's even less programming you have to do in that yeah. like that it's so much more set up for you um and you know julio mm-hmm. our dear friend was definitely someone who kind of like showed me that making something an rpg maker is like very doable by yeah. a single human being on their own just like given enough time and dedication and there's been some awesome games that have made an RPG maker that have gone on to sell like a whole shit ton of copies or like been downloaded a billion times on Steam. Um, so yeah, I've got like one project that I'm kind of slowly, very slowly chipping away at an RPG maker. And maybe within the next like five years, I'll actually be ready nice. to even talk about it. But right now I can like barely talk about it. Just cause it's like this, all I have is just a bunch of sprites, mm-hmm. like a concept. And that's about it. Uh, I know you have to get to work soon, so I don't want to hold you up much longer. I, just, I got two questions left for you. Yeah, I got the hard hat at like two, so yeah, it, um, yeah, no problem. So if you had to, if someone wanted to get into the indie comic book field, they want to start tomorrow making a comic. What's one bit of advice you would give them? Um, read more. Okay. Than you're currently reading. I assume that if you want to get into it, you're reading already. Mm-hmm. But I was not reading enough when I first got into it. And I think any lack of progress in my career, especially when it came to like making, you know, like money moves specifically, was a result of me not reading enough, not having a diverse enough library and like scope of what I was willing to read. 
not keeping up with creators and what they're dropping aside from the people that you like already know about, you know, like the extent of what you're reading is stuff that you like can just, you know, buy from like your local store. That's cool. But I also think that you should be, you know, looking at the artists you like and then look like read interviews by that artist that you like mm-hmm. and look at the names that they mention and then go read stuff by the names that those people are, you know, those mentioned people's names because it might not be something that you're particularly into. And I'm not going to tell you to read something that you're not into, but you should just, just be aware because the last thing you want to do is be having a conversation with someone who can really put you on. And the impression that they get from what you tell them is that you've not really read anything outside of your wheelhouse, so to speak. And then you get kind of typecasted. You're like, Oh, that, that guy, like all he does is read shonen manga. Great. Like shonen manga cool as fuck you know if that's what you want to do especially great but i really doubt that there's a lot of people who have gotten successful writing shonen stuff mm-hmm. only ever read shonen stuff. yeah exactly it's such a tropey genre that i think in order to be successful in it you have to have a range of influence that allows you to take those tropes and influence them with things that have nothing to do with them just so there's a little bit more flavor yeah you know um so yeah, my biggest advice for people who want to get into the industry is just like to say you're probably not reading enough or from a wide enough range and to expand your horizons and refine your tastes and don't feel like because something is not immediately interesting to you, it's not worth the time to read because... Yeah, reading certain things that initially put me off, like completely changed the way I look at what I do mm-hmm. and what other people do and the industry as a whole. And I don't think I would have been able to get to where I'm get to where like I still got the day job. Yeah. You know, I'm still teaching. You know, like I get some commissions here and there, some freelance work, a couple of, you know, maybe like once a month someone will hit me up for mm-hmm. something. Um, I'll do events and stuff like that. I self publish, you know. So I'm not trying to talk to you like I'm fucking, you know, Todd McFarlane and yeah. explain I became a millionaire by like 30 something. But what I am trying to say is just like, if you're someone listening to this and what I do sounds like what you want to be doing, my advice for how I got here was just by reading more and just wildly expanding what I would consider reading at any given time, you know? Mm-hmm. Nice. That was definitely not something I I would think of, but again, I'm not necessarily I'm field adjacent. I like reading stuff. I'm not I'm not in the industry, but that, that that's really good advice. I, I didn't think of that. Yeah, I mean, people get tunnel vision. People like mm-hmm. get totally stuck up on what they're like used to and a fan of. You know, like I know people who like don't read anything besides mech stuff. Yeah. And yeah. It's like, bro, there's a lot more than just mechs you know like that's such a a random thing to be honed in on but like of course i know people who like only fuck the fantasy and so if it's Mm -hmm. not fantasy they're not going to get into it and it's like you're really limited or they only like sci-fi and they refuse to read anything fantasy or they uh they don't really like those things because like they're unrealistic but Mm -hmm. they love crime as a genre and it's like you know how much fantasy crime there is you know how much fucking rules you know so yeah i try to i try to get people to get outside of their comfort zones when it comes to what they ingest because yeah. I think that everyone wins. The the creators win, the readers win, the distributors win, the publishers win. Like it's more sales, it's more confidence in the dollar for buyers. 
Great. Okay. And then the very last question I have, it has a little bit of a setup, so you're going to have to roll with me on this one. Imagine you're a very vicious murderer, just like grisly, grisly shit. The police come in, and you're just like over a pile of like 12 dead corpses, and just like you're mid-eating someone's liver. So they arrest you, they they bring you to court, and like during opening statements, someone from the jury stands up and is like, Judge, we don't need to hear anything He's guilty as fuck. He brought the liver he's eating in court right now. So they lock your ass up, and they're going to put you in the electric chair. And whoever sets up the electric chair, I'm assuming it's like a warden or an electrician or someone, they're strapping you up to the electric chair, and they're like, you can have one meal before you die. What? Tell me what your favorite food is, and I'll go get it for you. What would be, what would be your answer? What would be your last meal? My last meal, like mm-hmm. ever, last thing I will eat, so I better satisfy the fuck mm-hmm. out of me. Um, yeah, probably grilled octopus. Oh, okay. With some lemon potatoes, hmm. and um, yeah, it's a very strong choice. If if you got to go out on the electric chair, grilled octopus. Good option. Yeah, I just feel like that's like a very decadent mm-hmm. taste that I can think of and not something that I have very often, but I enjoy it quite a bit. It's nostalgic for me. So I think it just kind of like checks off all the boxes where it's like, you know, mm-hmm. it's not like the most fancy thing I can have, but like, I don't think I would want my last meal to be the fanciest thing possible. Yeah. I think it would be like what I would enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what I would enjoy the most. Nice. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Just like we have this conversation all the time, but like it was cool to do for like a microphone and like essentially an audience now. I think the best part about this was you did not ask the same questions that anyone ever asks when Mm -hmm. they hear about what I do. You know, you weren't like, yeah, like who are your favorite comic book creators? You know what I'm saying? Who, Who are your biggest? Or like you weren't like, what's your what's your process like or something yeah. like that like walk us through you making one of your comic books you know what i'm saying like those are episodes in and of themselves you know mm-hmm. like those questions like the questions you gave me were great because they could be answered in a pretty short concise amount of time and they're just like different questions than what i was used to i think especially that one about what medium i would use mm-hmm. as like my main storytelling medium if i did not have comics i think that was a great question yeah. And I would love to hear other people's answers to it. Um, But if people enjoyed this podcast and they want to check out the World's Unknown Anthology or your Patreon and the game you made, where can the people find you? Where can they see your art? Let us know so so we could help you. All right. So first of all, Instagram at T-O-U-S-I-U-S, right? Um, Probably where I upload the most consistently because, you know, it's just so eponymous at this point. Second, patreon.com forward slash T-O-U-S-I-U-S. Um, I have two tiers, but maybe by the time that people hear this, I might consolidate them into one tier. That just makes it easier for me. It'll probably be the cheaper price, but include the benefits mm-hmm. of the more expensive tier. Uh, just because the two tier shit makes it kind of difficult when I'm trying to publish something. And just the mental gymnastics that go into who gets to see what. So... Patreon.com forward slash T-O-U-S-I-U-S. Subscribe. You got access to the games. You got stuff in the mail, um, process videos, um, 
VODs of live stuff that I've done, uh, like live drawing and whatnot. And basically everything that's too spicy for Instagram in terms of like, um, you know, finished images and like finished drawings and pieces and like stuff that I don't think fits into Instagram's visual format really well gets uploaded there. Um, and other than that, I think that's kind of the extent of my web presence right now. Cause I used to have like a portfolio website, but I don't really use it anymore. And I don't have any other social media pages as it stands right now. So frankly, hit me up on Instagram, subscribe to my Patreon or I T O U S I U S at gmail.com. If you want to just talk to me about literally anything, um, I, all, most of the email I get is either work related or mm-hmm. spam. So like someone reaching out just to be like, Hey, like I heard you on this podcast. You sound cool. Like literally anything. I also like there. little octopus. Yeah. Like, like literally just like, you know, don't, don't, don't be, I'm like a real human being. You know what I'm saying? I'm not some weird, like comic creating computer. So like, if you want to know anything more or have any questions about my practice or anything like that, one knows what games I'm playing or what I'm watching. Shoot me a DM or send me an email. Like, let's just talk. You know what I'm saying? It's a uh, short life we live. So I feel like the more people I get to come in contact with, even electronically, the better. You know, it's just something to do. And to all of our listeners frantically trying to scribble down how to spell his last name and the email address, instead of rewinding, I'm going to have all of that typed out in the liner notes. You can just check that down below. Uh, I'm also going to have the link where you could buy the world's unknown anthology uh curated by sorry edited by gavin Mackey. both ian and gavin were involved in this so if you want to buy a copy i think the shit's like eight dollars or ten dollars it's like a great deal to get like nine unique stories i'll have that down below uh if you like this and you want to hear more of me you're in luck i have a shit ton of other podcasts um, if you subscribe to this feed like where you listen to me on spotify right now you can get access to own two heroes that's a video game podcast that I do that Ian was actually also the first guest on that. Um, we should have two episodes up of that by the time this comes out. I have a podcast where we talk about the Mighty Ducks cartoon because that's the most bonkers-ass 90s shit you've ever seen. It is and, ridiculous, actually. Going back to it, yeah. that series is pretty cracked out for sure. It's wild. And uh, yeah. me and my buddy Tom, we review the first two episodes. It's called The Mightiest Crack. You can check that out. It's a, it, it, It's pretty silly. But that's all on the same feed. Um, and then I have another podcast where we review energy drinks. Even if you don't like energy drinks, it's me and my buddy. We're just bullshitting, having a fun time. It's just an excuse for us to, to be jackasses on Mike. And you can stay on top of all of that if you follow us on Twitter at BDEpod. Uh, you can find information on all of the podcasts I mentioned there. And if you want to follow me, I'm also on Twitter at, at MikeyTabletop. And... I said I'm not really in the comics field. Uh, The one thing I have in there, uh, our friend Julio that we mentioned previously, I helped uh, edit and release the comic book he was working on. Uh, That's called Inner Darkness. Uh, So that is a collection, I think, of the first two issues. If you want to go ahead and get that, it's over on a GoFundMe page. If you want to donate no money and just read and experience the, the art that he put into this world, it's up there for free. But if you do decide to donate, all of the proceeds go to the Rainforest Action Network. They help fight climate change 
and fight mm-hmm. for the rights of indigenous people and like preserve the rainforest. It's a great organization. So all yeah. of the money goes to that. There's also a free option. And that link will also be down in, in the show description if you want to check out any of the work that we have. We'll get that. Go kick some cash towards a good cause. Yeah. Shout out to our brother Julio. Um, there is one more plug that I want to mm-hmm. make that I forgot about before. Um, tragicaccident.bigcartel.com, the web store. Can't believe I forgot this one because your boy always needs money. And that is if, – if you if you can't subscribe to the Patreon because you can't spend, you know, however many dollars a month, it's cheap. But still, like if the idea of subscribing freaks you out because you're going to forget about it and then, you know, you spend $100 before you realize it. That big cartel page has got some prints. It's got some books. That is a great way that you can just directly support me. Buy something. I'll send in the mail. Throw some extra goodies in there, some stickers and shit like that. Um, so definitely check that out if you're looking to support the cause. And all of those links, all of those Twitter and Instagram handles will be down below. So you can just click that, get taken to wherever you want. Ian, thank you so much for being on. I had such a great time. And, thank you for uh, having me. I yeah. enjoyed myself quite a bit. And if you're ever working on another project, if you've got something else coming out and you want to get on, if you want to come back on and talk about that, just like, I, my podcast motto is never say no. If you have anything you want to talk about, fuck it. I'll, I'll do a podcast on it. Come back. I, uh, I might have a couple of ideas for at least like a, a single episode related to some random topic that I can think of for sure. That, like that, I would love to, um, I love to try to, I saw this thing online. It's, um. A, a Yu-Gi-Oh player, like mm-hmm. a pro Yu-Gi-Oh player, looks at cards from other TCGs and oh, tries okay. to decide what like tier they belong to in terms of like you know effectiveness mm-hmm. and quality and stuff like that. And considering you are such a fighting game guy, mm-hmm. I feel like there's something there that can be similar. Like you know, because you're like a pretty devoutly Smash dude, but you're pretty familiar with other fighting games. And I, I love wonder- tier lists. Yeah, maybe I can literally grab a tier list from a game that I know very well and present the options to you one by one and have you make some educated guesses as to what tier you think they belong to. Because I think there might be something kind of rich there. That, I don't that know. sounds very fun. So, cool. so, right. so I, the I, cool I'm thing with with like this feed right now, instead of on Spotify, because I have so many different podcasts, instead of having like, oh, and two heroes beats one feed, and this beats one feed, and the mightiest crack be one, it's all under the BDE showcase. So all of these shows, just subscribe to it. You get all of my podcasts. And I think The yeah. Mighty Quack is going to be a one-off. We did one episode last Halloween. We haven't done one since. I don't know if we're going to do one again. Yeah. So, like, the one-off random collections that I – I have a couple other podcasts where we did a pilot. We're like, eh, I don't want more of this. That's all going on here. So even if it's just one, fuck it. I'm in. Dick. All right, cool. I'll start thinking about it. Nice. All right, man. Thank you again so much for having me. Thank you, the listener, for giving enough of a shit to tune in. I hope that you got some entertainment out of this, some information out of this. If you are someone who's interested in doing the type of stuff that I do, I support you. I believe in you. The only thing stopping you is shitty stuff that shouldn't, so don't let it. And whatever you're into, do it the best you can because you deserve to be happy and successful.